coming to you today from an undisclosed location. But I do want to say that it is surrounded, as is the world, as is your life and my life, by the love of God. Dallas Willie wrote in The Divine Conspiracy that the acid test of any theology is, does it present a God who is thoroughly lovable? And if it doesn't, if it fails to present a God who is joyful and friendly and winsome and thoroughly accessible, we're on the wrong track. Because God is love. And we're thinking these days about the love of God. We will turn Sue to joy and to peace, but right now it's love. And I'm reminded of God's love over and over again. Nancy and I were out surfing yesterday, and within a yard of her surfboard, there was a great big sea turtle. And God must surely delight in that. I'll be speaking at a conference here, and I went down to the front desk of the hotel because I had finished my talk on the plane, so I emailed a manuscript to them, and they had said that they would print it off for me. And the woman at the desk said, yep, we'll do that, but there's a charge for everything over every page over five pages. And initially I was thinking, seriously? Like, how much does a page cost? Are you really going to charge me for that? Then I thought, don't be a jerk. So uh, I said, sure, I understand, no problem. And she ran it off, and then she looked at it, and she said, you're spreading the word of God, no charge. And it made me glad I had not been a jerk. And it reminded me of those four movements that Dallas talks about of love, that God first loves us and then we're able to love God and then we can love other people. And then in the community of prayerful love, they love us. In the story of uh, Jesus, that means the most of me. He says that God is like a lovesick father. And uh, that heart is always vulnerable. You are driving and you hear a song of an artist that you love and you remember that it was a child who told you about that artist and then you remember the whole story and the heart of a father that loves uh, is never safe no matter how long no matter what happens never safe i think uh the most beautiful version outside of the one Jesus told of his story, The Prodigal Son, was written by Philip Yancey. Philip's memoirs came out this last year, but this particular version of uh, The Prodigal Child is in Philip's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And I wanna offer it to you just as a gift today. You don't have to do anything. I mean, if there's somebody where you can run off a copy free of charge, do something nice for somebody, express love for somebody today in a way that surprises them, go ahead and do that. But for now, just think about how much you are loved by God. Think about Jesus saying that if ever a father's heart breaks, then they know what it is to have a little glimmer of the love of God. Think of the word home as you listen to this story. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just outside Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, uh, a bit old, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a play, and she's mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before, on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because the newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid details the gangs and drugs and violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she has ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, 
arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all that fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks at home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial, she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the streets without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores, although sleeping is the wrong word. Teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark circles under her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry and she needs a fix. She pulls her leg tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled on top of her colt. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she asks herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing, and she knows, in a flash, that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections. Uh, she hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way. It'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stand the bus till it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. Uh, what if her parents don't check their voicemail? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine, Dad. Can you forgive me? She says the word over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She has not apologized to anyone for years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh God. When the bus finally pulls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 
15 minutes, folks. It's all the time we have. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her lips, teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingers and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They are all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears, quivering in her eyes like hot mercury, and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. And that's the story of the heart of a lovesick father. And that is the God of whom we learn about from Jesus. Come home. <laughs>